Welcome home to the Grad School Soul Collective, where we educate and empower black and brown grad students on their doctoral journey. On this podcast, you'll hear from successful grad students, scholars, experts in the field, and even entrepreneurs. They'll share their insights, their challenges, and their most impactful takeaways with one goal in mind, to position you for success from day one. Here's our host, Alyssa J. We are going to talk about a couple of things on today's show. Um, two things specifically, what graduate students should consider when entering the professoriate and how universities can support their professional growth once they're there. And our guest for today's show is Dr. Kimberly Moffitt. Dr. Moffitt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited for this conversation. Um, and so before we get going, I want to give um, just a little bit of background um, about you. So Dr. Moffitt is the interim dean in the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And before that, she was professor and director of the Language, Literacy, and Culture Pro Doctoral Program. I was almost in one of those programs, by the ah. way. Yes, yes. <laughs> Curriculum and instruction, but I was almost... Okay language literacy, prior literacy coach. <laughs> okay, let me jump out of your, let me jump out of your bio here, but yes. Um, and she was also an affiliate professor. Um, she is also an affiliate professor of Africana studies. Her research focuses on mediated representations of marginalized groups, as well as um, the politicized nature of black hair and the body. Um, Dr. Moffitt has published several articles um, and book chapters. Uh, she's also, um, as well as five co-edited volumes, five co-edited volumes. She writes op-ed articles for the, for the Baltimore Sun. Um, she's a member of the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Mm -hmm. Yes. And she serves on the board of the National Association of Media Literacy Education, namely, and this is just some some snapshots, um, but she is um, amazing. Um, and I'm so um, privileged to, to have her um, come on. I reached out um, and asked her and she, you know, like hit me back so quickly. And so I'm excited. So um, welcome again, Dr. Moffitt. And um, you ready to ready to roll? I'm ready to roll. Okay, great, great, great. So when I looked at your background, I looked at your teaching, I looked at your um, working in communities, um, the work with all of that stuff. And I thought for a minute, my goodness, um, one, I don't know too many people that have done um, media, work with media, research media. Um, and with that, I, I thought to myself, my goodness, I wonder if one, she always saw herself um, as a professor. And then um, the, the second thing I thought was my goodness, did she see herself um, in higher ed leadership mm. once she once she got there? And so I I want to just start us out there because um, I, I you know that th those two don't necessarily always go together. No, you're right. You're right. And and my story is a little um, more convoluted than that because I actually started uh, law school and uh, realized that 
this was not a good fit for me. Um, but it took some mentors to help with that, um, which is why I think it's so good that you have the conversation about the way and the roles that mentors play in our lives to kind of help guide us. Um, I was in a joint degree program um, at, in grad school to do my JD as well as a master's in communication. Mm. And I remember being in the classroom of one of my um, professors, Dr. Um, Paul Erickson, who is now um, already transitioned. But he said to me, um, he wrote it on my uh, on a uh, essay that I submitted, and then he held me after class to have this conversation. And he said, Kimberly, you belong in a classroom, not a courtroom. Wow. And I was like, what? What is that? I don't understand. I mean, I was like 22. <laughs> and so I stayed after class to talk to Dr. Paul Erickson. And he said, yeah, that's not for you. And I said, what do you mean? I went through undergrad focused on political science. I, I'm going to be in the courtroom, you know, LA law. I mean, all of that was a part of my reality. And he was like, no, that's not where your gifts are. And so not only did he just say that, but what he also did is I was graduating that semester and he made phone calls to a couple of universities in the area when I was living in Boston and called up a colleague at Boston College and said, I've got a student that's graduating, you need her to teach for you. And I taught my first grad, my first college course at Boston College, right out of grad school. And um, got bit by the bug. Like, I was like, oh my gosh, like, is there anything else to do <laughs> but to teach? And I have now reached a point of seeing teaching as just one of my gifts, that it comes natural to me. I come alive when doing it. Um, I feel like that is the way that I connect most with um, others around me, that I'm imparting knowledge, but they're giving it to me too. And I love that exchange. And um, it's part of the reason why I've always said, I will stay on a college campus because I want to always learn and always be absorbed by those who are also trying to learn and see what we can gain from the experience together. So I didn't see myself as a teacher professor at all, but um, I do come from a family of teachers. My mom was a kindergarten teacher for most of my life. Shut the front door. <laughs> no, I love that. Mine too, mine too. Um, and I do remember calling and telling my mom that I think I'm gonna go back and get my PhD. And she was like, oh my God, it's another teacher. Why aren't you doing something different? And I was like, no, I think this is it. I think this is a good spot. And, and I know the gifted teacher that my mom was. Um, and so I see it as, as a complete honor to you know, have any aspect of her showing up in me and being able to connect with um, students the way that I saw her doing so. Um, my mom is now transitioned, but I, I mean, literally, this is a completely separate and a side story, but it, it just shows you the power of um, the teaching experience as a gift that um, I was walking across campus at UMBC. This is pre-pandemic, so probably 2019. 
And this young man walks over to me and he says, are you Dr. Mob? And I said, yes, I am. He said, I know you don't know me. He was like, but I'm a freshman. He said, you know, my stepdad, when him and my mom brought me, he and my mom brought me up for, um, to drop me off, um, you spoke at one of our assemblies. And um, my stepdad said, I don't know many Moffats. I wonder if she's kin to the Moffats in my hometown. And, um, and he said, where are you from? And I said, Greensboro, North Carolina. And he said, so is my stepdad. And he said, my stepdad wanted to know if you happen to know Yvonne Moffat because that was his kindergarten teacher. Uh, (laughs) So here it is, this man in his forties is telling his stepson who's 18, right? That this woman was so like significant to his formal education experience that in his forties, he's reflecting back and saying, I wonder if she's kin to Miss Moffat. Mm. And so, I mean, I get goosebumps even talking about because it's just so powerful of the impact that teaching can have on individuals' lives. And, And I think or feel like that's a part of who I am as well, because I do love that piece. And I'll tell you that leads into your second question. So because I love it so much, I never saw myself doing higher education um, leadership, never. Um, Because I know where I shine and where I show up. And I thought, I'm good. Like full professor, I'm good. But there were Um, other opportunities along the way there were mentors along the way that said nope nope you can do this you can do this I was like no I'm good I'm this is this works for me I get to do my research I get to talk to students I'm good nope nope you got there's something else you need to be doing there are ways that you can contribute there are um, uh, gifts that you have that can really help in terms of what we're doing in higher ed leadership And I resisted that for the most part, but I did have the opportunity um, at UMBC to serve as the faculty senate president. And it was that opportunity that really opened up the door for me to say, hmm, maybe I can do. (laughs) Because it was an experience that allowed me to see the entire purview of a college campus and how it worked, how it was structured, you know, who who were the key people that were helping to make certain decisions that of course trickled down and impacted my life in the classroom. And seeing that the sausage being made in that way made me think this is something I'm interested in learning more about. How can I learn more about it? So I participated in a couple of leadership development programs and then started looking to see what were some options for me to take advantage of, um, to get more formal leadership experience. So wow and wow. Um, (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) No, I I love that. Um, And and this is going to be just probably another side conversation or another podcast, but I, I love that because even talking about um, who you saw yourself as um, and how you wrestled with that, um, I think sometimes we see, we as folks on the outside, we see folks in the position mm. and we forget that there is a person that's there and they had a journey and they weren't always right there. And, and there right. are some assumptions, right? right? That, oh, and, and oh, look at them. It's like, 
you don't know kind of what was. And so I appreciate you kind of pulling back the veil a little bit and saying, mm, I wrestled with this a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And I still do. I still do. As much as I want to be in a leadership role like this, because I do think there are some qualities that um, I'm bringing to the table that can really do some good work um, for universities um, and hopefully at UMBC. Um, I do still wrestle with that gift that I know as teaching and how important that was to me. And also knowing that the connection with students is what has kept me in the professoriate. And so how can I craft a, um, a way of showing up as an, a higher education administrator that is still connected to students so that I don't lose sight of that part of why I wanted to be a professor, why I've stayed as a professor and why I love being a professor. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. I love that. And um, I love that. So I, I want to transition just a little bit. And you, you started you started going down here a little bit when you talked about your experience um, when you were in law school, right? And, and having that um, professor say, hey, this is your, I see this for you. And not only that, but like making the phone calls and reaching out mm. to, um, mm -hmm. you know, to that network to say, yeah. hey, I, I want to connect you with this. I want to, you know, kind of give you this launch pad. Um, so when you think about mentorship, right, once you made the switch over and said, I, no, I'm not going to be an attorney. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, what is maybe another example that you can share about um, an, an experience with mentorship um, kind of through your, um, as an either assistant professor, associate professor, or just as your tenure when you, when you made that switch? Yeah. Um, so... What I also know about my journey is that um, most of my mentors have been men. Um, and I certainly support it, but I have always wanted and looked to find women to do the same for me. And it looks different, but that's okay. And I do think um, I, one of my colleagues now on campus is, is such a, a, a mentor to me in that way. And, and she was the chair of my department when I came to UMBC as an assistant professor. And I remember um, a conversation one day when my husband was picking me up uh, from the office and we walked out together and she leaned into uh, the car to get as close to him as possible. And she said, you let me know if she's not happy, because I need to know what I can do to change that for her, because I don't want her going anywhere. And, um, and that showed up in so many ways um, from, you know, me starting there with a, with a newborn and a two-year-old and her making it clear that, no, you won't teach late afternoon classes. You certainly won't teach evening classes. I'm giving you this type of schedule because I know what you need and the time and flexibility that's necessary for someone with young children. Um, whether it is the moment when I thought I might leave the university because I had another opportunity. And she said, no, we need to have a conversation because I can make this happen for you um, so that it is the right place for you to stay. Or even when I lost my dad, and I think that's probably the most um, significant moment when 
I called to share that I had lost my father, wanted to, you know, help my mom out. They were college sweethearts. She was struggling, didn't know how to, you know, pick up and carry on. And I felt like as the oldest child that that was my responsibility to go to my mom and be as supportive of her as I could. And I made one phone call. And at this point, that mentor was no longer my chair. She was an administrator in the provost's office. And I called and I said, how do I handle this? She was like, no, we're handling this. And she did the same thing that Dr. Erickson did. <laughs> and I'm referring to um, Dr. Um, Patrice McDermott because I feel like she has to be named because of the significance that she played for me and continues to play for me now that we're colleagues in the administration. But she picked up the phone and did the same thing that Dr. Erickson did and started calling folks and saying, how are we going to make this work? Because I see us as a community. We've got a community member in need who needs our support. How are we going to show up and do it? And she made that work. Um, and that story um, stands out to me because that's the same way that I try and show up for colleagues too. To make sure that I see them as a full person, not just as someone that's teaching classes for us, not someone who is just doing research for us, not someone who is just sitting on a number of committees for us to carry out a job, but they are a full person with all these things that are happening in their lives. So what can I do as a colleague, as a mentor, as a friend to show up and help them in that particular space? I can't solve it all, but I can certainly show up in a way that lets them know that I am, I see them as an important part of the community and what I want to do to try and support them. It's amazing to me. It's amazing in a wonderful way and refreshing even like it's literally my body is like, oh my goodness. Um, but she was there for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was there for and, you. And you know, we're probably 10 years apart mm -hmm. in age. And what um what I love and, and think is so very important about mentorship is that it needs to erase the notion about age and who's wise, who is not, right? Because it doesn't matter how old you are or even how young you are, similar to what I was sharing earlier about my daughter, that you know my daughter clearly is much younger than I am, but she showed up in this universe teaching me something, teaching me a number of things. Um, and so she has helped mentor me around particular issues um, to show me what I can do and do differently than what I've done for most of my life. The same thing with um, my older mentors, they have given me insight to say, here is a way to look at 
what you possibly want to do. It's not necessarily giving me the answers, but certainly putting on the table, like here are your options. This is what you need to consider. And I think that's the piece about mentorship that is so very important is that it doesn't have a direct beginning and end unless you choose to end the relationship, right? But mentorship is consistent. Mentorship doesn't go away because no matter what period or phase of your life you're in, you need folks around you that can help and mentor you. And it may not be just professional, right? There may be aspects of your personal life, right? Or how you show up as a parent, you know, how you show up as a friend, like all of those things still um, require some level of mentorship. And I think it's so very important to think about mentorship as this um, ever evolving Mm -hmm. um, process that you're participating in. And so folks may come and go, but you're always in need of some form of mentorship. And and I know that that's a bit of a different perspective, but I will tell you the reason I look at it that way is because I'm always in learning mode. Like that's the beauty of being an academic is I feel like I get the opportunity to be paid to learn. And I'm always in that space. So even as the interim dean that is making the decisions for a college, I'm in learning mode because I'm listening to what my colleagues are saying, listening to what the faculty are saying, listening to what the staff are saying so that I can learn more about this role, about their experiences, about higher ed that then help to inform me um, of the decisions that I decide to make on behalf of my colleagues. Yeah. Even what's significant to me, um, one of the things you said that stood out was, you know, coming and, and starting and, and having young kids and, and um, having someone there who heard that and said, okay, there are some real tangible, practical things that, that, that we can do That's right. um, in terms of hearing you. And then what does that look like in terms of setting you up, setting you up, um, for success. We know that you're, we want you here. We, we brought you here. We, we think you're amazing, but we want to keep you. Mm-hmm. And so, um, oh my gosh, it's super significant. Um, so as I'm thinking about um, folks like me, right? So I'm a fifth year candidate. Yeah. Right? Working on my disc, working <laughs> on that disc right now. <laughs> Wonderful. <Yep. laughs> and congrats. You're Ooh. almost there. Almost, almost there. Almost still. And we still. need you on the other side. So Thank keep you. it moving. Thank you. Still married. Still married. Um, so, oh my goodness. But when I think about folks, you know, my co- my you know, cohort, my colleague, my colleagues, um, right now there's a lot of um there's a lot of movement in terms of like 
who do, where do we want to apply to? What might be a good fit? And, and what should we be looking for? And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about um, what would be your advice for um, folks that knowing that, you know, no one is exactly the same, <laughs> you know, but what are some things that um, folks like that are in our position should be considering um, if they are looking at um, going into the professoriate being an assistant professor? Yeah. And um, so what I always talk to my grad students about is to ask all the questions about the professoriate that you can think of, um, including how much y'all get paid? Mm, yes. Because I think that's one that um, we don't have enough conversations about. And then it shocks, startles, pisses folks off <laughs> because they're like, what? I did all of this and this is what the outcome is. And so I think it's so very important for grad students to ask as many questions that pop up in their head in reference to what it means to be an academic, because you can't just look at the person standing before you, you know, um, pontificating in front of a class, and then you know they leave there and do some interesting research project, and they might be married, and they might have children. You're like, oh, that looks good. I like that. You need to know the details, the nitty gritty of what that really is, and how it shows up in their life, and for them to give you insight of what um, it could look like in your own life. So I think it's so very important to be as forthright as possible in terms of asking the most candid of questions so that you understand the professoriate completely. Um, I think there are a number of us, especially black and brown um, grad students who uh, avoid certain questions. And one of those again is about salary. And so they make assumptions and then are highly disappointed um, after the fact. And so if you know that money is a huge aspect of what you're trying to get out of this PhD, then you might also be saying that the professoria is not for you because that's not where you show up to become rich. That's where you show up to enrich in terms of sharing and imparting knowledge to others. And if that's something that fulfills you, that that's where your passions are, that that's where you're committed to, you'll be fine. But if you know that there are other things that you're expecting out of that, especially um, tied to financial um, desires, then you really need to be honest with yourself of whether or not it's the right place to be. Um, so that's the first thing that really stands out to me. Um, I also think it's important to know the type of institution you want to be at. Now, there's nothing wrong with moving institutions. So I don't mean that in terms of like locking yourself in. I just simply mean in terms of knowing what are the types of places that I want to be. Geography, size of um, institution, you know, it, is diversity an issue? Um, you know, do I need to be in a city versus a rural area? You know, do I need to make sure I'm in a place where I can get my hair done? Like all of those things are real. And you can, at the end of the day, say, I got a job and I'm a professor somewhere. But if all the other things outside of that job aren't working for you, you're not happy, you're not fulfilled, and you pro probably won't stay, um, or you find yourself quite disillusioned. And I have friends on the spectrum of all of those that I just mentioned that are quite disillusioned and unhappy, but they happen to be at a R1 institution. So at least they get to say, but if you don't have anything else but R1 status, 
are you really fulfilled? And so you've got to know what it is that's going to fulfill you so you can work towards it and that you can have the things that you actually do enjoy while being in a job that you say that you also enjoy. Um, for me, I will also say for those um, black and brown folks who are doing research on their communities to make sure that you are solidly um, integrated in that research, you're comfortable with that research and you aren't willing to allow people to dissuade you to do something else. Because that's the other thing that we often hear is that you decided to publish that dissertation, you know, talking about an aspect of your community and then you show up um, as a tenure track uh, faculty member someone, somewhere and folks are telling you that's not quite gonna get you where you need to get to in terms of tenure and promotion. And I would say, um, I feel like we are in a different day and age, even in the midst of like all the chaos with our democracy, but I still feel like we're in a particular spot where we can come out saying, this is what I'm committed to and this is the work that I'm going to do and not being dissuaded from it. Uh, I remember a, a situation where I had, I presented um, at a one of the research centers on our campus um, as an assistant prof. And um, I was presenting about Disney and talking about the representations of um, a, teenage black boys on Disney programming, like what were the roles that they tended to play um, and, and how might that be received by, cause I had interviewed um, black teenage boys to see like, what do you think about these representations? And um, folks were very fascinated because this, it hadn't been done before, right? No one had specifically talked to, talk to this segment of the population about their representations on Disney programming. So everyone was all into it. And I had this one white male colleague who during Q&A said, this is so fascinating. He said, but I think there would be greater credence to your work if you compared it to what white male representations are and how they think about their representation. And I was diplomatic, but I was very clear in communicating to him that I don't need their presence to justify that of these black teenage boys. And that is a spot that we all need to reside in, that we need to be comfortable enough to say, I don't need anything else to justify the lived experience of black and brown folks in this country, that we are enough <laughs> alone to do research on and to give it credence to what we wanna understand about the human experience in this country. That's it, period. So you've gotta be, certain to be comfortable in that space and make sure that folks don't push you to um, move away from that. And then of course, I would say mentors, making sure you are diversifying your, your mentor pool. They don't all have to look like you. They don't all have to sound like you or be from the place that you are from. You need to choose individuals that just have your highest good at the center of what they're trying to do. That's the biggest part. If they are interested in trying to support you and help you get to the next level, those are the people that you want to work with, regardless of these other kind of demographic um, um, features that might make you look different from each other. But as long as they've got the common goal of your highest good, that's all that matters. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I also love the, the raising up of um, the opportunity cost. 
right? Of saying, I'm going to get this, um, this thing, but then there are all these other things uh, which are, you know, connected, connected to quality of life. Absolutely. You know, and, you know, Absolutely. especially being a, a woman, a woman of color, I have, I have locks and uh, I, I color them. I don't color them, but um, <laughs> I'm colored, colored, um, <laughs> but things like that. Um, I love to see um, representations of black hair and um, not being able to get my hair done um, would be something that would, that, you know, you're thinking, oh my goodness, is that a small thing? But it's not. It's yeah. Not and, a- and when you're thinking about it, um, when it's in the abstract, it does seem like a small thing, but that's real. It's real. That's real because it comes with so many things, like the people who are doing your hair, that means they- Oh, the experiences. You. I mean, just, it's, it's so very important. It's so very important. Yeah, it's super important. It's super important. It goes into the the fabric of your experiences, and so um, I really appreciate that. Um, seemingly small, but not very significant. Um, my sure. goodness. So I I wanna um, I, and and I know you can tell as you're talking. I'm thinking. I'm reflecting. I'm trying to. You know. I'm like, oh my goodness. Um, but I I wanna. I, I want to leave us with the last question, which is kind of a, a, a launchpad question. Um, when I was doing some, some reading, I found out about um, UMBC's um, program right now and cultivating this pipeline of um, professors of color. And I, I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about um, that program and what, what you're most excited about for folks that are already there. They've been in the professoriate and now we're building their capacity mm-hmm. and and you're answering the question um, for me so I think you're referring to our um, grant that was um, uh, granted by the Mellon Foundation called Breaking the Mold yes and um, love the title I didn't come up with it uh, it's a part of the the PI team that did come up with it but love the title because it is trying to disrupt that mold and by mold we're talking about those individuals who oftentimes are in higher education leadership tend to be white male and also from STEM disciplines that's it so when you think about president, provost, and uh, vice president for research at most campuses, they can fit into those categories. Um, breaking the mold is trying to disrupt that and say, mm, those aren't the only people who can do this work. But how do we ensure that others know that they're not the only ones that can do this work? And so this is an opportunity to develop and cultivate a pipeline that's focusing primarily on um, faculty of color, women, as well as those colleagues who are at the associate professor level and have stalled out. Because what we also know is, unless you become full professor, you really are boxed out of a number of leadership roles on a um, college campus. So we've got to make sure that you're a full professor so you can even have access to the door um, to enter higher education leadership. And so for us, this is an opportunity to really um, cultivate the skill set, the ideas of what a leader can look like that happens to be in particular from the arts and humanities, and then some of the qualitative social sciences. But we really want to shake up this whole notion of 
only the STEM folks can be the ones that lead college campuses. That's absurd, right? I mean, think about it as a, as a humanist myself, but we, I, I study the human experience. So would that not be a skill set that would really help in terms of running my own small world of a college campus? Yeah. In terms of understanding the human experience, absolutely it would. The level of critical thinking skills that we develop um, in, in um, the arts and humanities. Um, those are all the, the way that we're always grappling with real time, real life issues, yeah. not just in the abstract, but bringing conversations about George Floyd into the classroom. Right now. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Looking at media and saying, what are they talking about in reference to this particular social justice movement or this particular tragedy of a loss of life at the hands of police? All of those ensure that we already have instilled in us by the, our training of what we've experienced in the arts and humanities to in fact be good at leading a college campus, but it hasn't been received that way. So breaking the mold really is an opportunity to show folks that these are tangible skills that you're overlooking that really can change leadership on your college campus. It can change the face of your campus whether it is a person of color, whether it is a woman, whether it is someone from the arts that can run your campus and not just be at a art school, but they've got the skill set which affords them the opportunity in which to lead. I think about myself in this capacity. So my degree is in um, communication and media studies. One of the skill sets that has stood out to me in serving in this interim dean role for the last 18 months is, the, is my communication skills. My ability to share good and not so good news in all of these uh, different contexts or to reframe conversations so that people can understand why we're making certain decisions has all been a result of my background in communication. And that shows up when we need it most in leadership positions. And who, I mean, what better time? And, and I make reference often about this whole notion of grief leadership, which is this concept that, you know, when tragedy occurs, that you need certain people to step forward and be the leaders because they're the ones that can calm the sea. They're the ones that can assure you that, yes, this is a rocky period, but look at where we're going and look at the opportunities we have to look forward to, that those individuals are so very important to be at the helm in the moment of something like a global pandemic to let you know that we are going to make it through this. Those skills can be used even outside of a tragedy. Yeah. Those skills are so very important for a college president or a provost to be able to use um, in, in conveying multiple messages to a, a college campus. And so we are really about the business of saying, you've overlooked some important people to be able to be leaders at your college campuses because you believed that someone who is an engineer is the only one that can do some of this work or someone who is you know, a well-endowed biologist um, that comes with all this funding can be that person for you. And what we're arguing is that there are a number of other people who can bring that same level of skill to um, 
the work of being a higher education leader that will still benefit you tremendously. Again, using myself as an example with the communication background. So no, I am not a skilled fundraiser, but you know what I am? I can tell a damn good story. That's right. And when I can tell a story, that's what many funders are looking for to be able to connect with and make a decision of if this is where they would like to see their money live and grow and thrive. So that is another aspect of overlooking a certain large segment of higher ed and saying we don't see leadership there when in fact there are so many of us who are leaders here. And so this program is an opportunity to do just that for a number of colleagues um, at not just UMBC, but also University of Maryland College Park, as well as Morgan State. So the three campuses are working together to pull these um, cohorts together and show them what they need in order to actually be successful as higher ed leadership um, leaders. And then what we're doing is packaging um, a, a, um, a, a module that we want to be transportable to be able to share with other college campuses to share with academic search firms to say, this is what you need to be looking for when you're looking for leaders, not just the STEM disciplines, but look at these individuals as well. So that's a long way of talking about the work that we're doing um, or in the midst of doing, because we just started this program, which is why I'm so very excited. I'm in the midst of all the other craziness that's happening around us and certainly in higher ed, here is an opportunity for us to do some really groundbreaking, innovative, you know, earth shattering work that makes higher ed look a lot different than it did in the 20th century. I love it. And I think this is, I can't even tell you how how excited I am to hear um, the journey of the work, um, to see that module come to fruition and to um, create the type of learning communities because I think that it, even, even that connection that you talked about with th- these three universities, you know, coming together, even that to me oh, is yeah. innovative because- oh, no, we're so you, excited. You know, colleges are and, like- And I just want to make mention that all their two- pa- PIs on each campus and all of us are women. Yeah. Come so. on. <laughs> yeah. So so even in that decision making, we were yeah. clear in terms of saying we are trying to disrupt what higher education leadership looks like. And we're starting with ourselves by making sure that it's not the same leaders that we see in everything, but there are women leaders who are at the table that's going to change the way that things look. I love it. I love it. Well, I cannot wait um, for, for everybody that's out there. We are going to um, make sure that we drop in the show notes, the, the links to, um, you know, the, the, uh, the landscape in terms of, of me, because that's how I found out about you in terms of um, what was happening at UNBC and, and Mellon's funding and, and all of that. And so we'll drop that in. We'll also drop in there some, some links to your phenomenal research um, that you talked about, about Disney. And I am just um, overjoyed, um, a little bit overwhelmed because there were so many unexpected in here that, that we hit on that um, um, I can't wait for folks, folks that, um, you know, this is one of those podcasts that I'm, that I'm, that folks can listen and listen again, right. Mm-hmm. And, and go back and get some more nuggets. And so um, 
you know, thank you, Dr. Moffitt for for the opportunity. Um, I, these are the moments that I try. And uh, the reason when you said, oh, and you responded almost immediately because I, that's my connection with students. And so if there's an opportunity and a way for me to say, oh, a student's in need, a student needs me or wants me, I really try and tap into that fairly quickly because it's so very important to just the base of how I even got to where I am now is because of the love of students. Well, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, for everybody out there, um, please know that we can do, um, you know, we can do good things individually, uh, but we are so much better together. And so I am grateful that um, for all of our listeners, and I'm grateful um, to you, um, Dr. Moffitt, and, um, you know, just until we meet again, we'll see you next time.